Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to another Thursdays with Trey and Mary Langston. Let me get the bad news out of the way first. Mary Langston is taking the first break. I can remember her taking in the five plus years I've known her. She did take the afternoon off when she got married. Well, part of the afternoon, but this is the first like extended time off. And even though I thought it was a good idea at the time for her to go somewhere and do something fun for a week, I now regret it. And I can assure you, I will not make this mistake again, but Alas, all is not lost. I am revisiting a conversation I had with another remarkable young woman, Naomi Schaefer-Riley. Naomi is an author and a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. I know I did, and I learned a lot. Uh, You know, I like talking to smart people. I like talking to people that have areas of expertise uh, that I do not have. You may have it, but I don't have it. So I am uh, thrilled today to welcome uh, Naomi Schaefer-Riley. She is an author, which to me also means that she's a researcher because to write well, um, you have to know what you're talking about. So with that, Naomi, I'm going to ask you some other biographies. In fact, I'll start right now. You graduated from Harvard with a degree in English and government. Is that right? Yep, that's correct. All right. And you graduated... When I was looking at your bio, I saw this Latin phrase that I have never seen before, not in connection with any of my friends, and I'll probably mispronounce it, magna cum laude. Is that right? Is that close? That's correct. Yes. (laughs) What does that mean? I've never seen those three words together in that order before. Well, it means I, I graduated with some honors, not the highest honors, not the lowest honors, but some honors. So that means you had good grades. I, I is that, is that a nice way of putting it? Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. I tried <laughs> well, no, hard. no wonder I did not recognize that. <laughs> uh, English and government. Why, why those may, I love to ask people why they majored and what they majored in. Why did you pick those two? Um, I, I love literature. That's why I picked English. Um, I liked writing uh, and I thought it would be a great way to get to read a lot of stuff that I would enjoy. Um, and government also just an interest of mine. I mean, I did not, uh, I did not pick majors with a view to getting a job when I was finished with school. Um, I just picked it based on what I was interested in. All right. I cannot, I don't think I've ever had an English major on my show or the podcast without or none who admitted it anyway. <laughs> well, I know I begged my kids to major in English. Neither one of them did it. If I had to do it all over again, I would have majored in English. So I've got to ask you the same questions. Ask all English majors. You're on a deserted Island. You can only have one book with you. One novel. What is that novel? Uh, that is a hard question. I don't know. People have asked me this before. Um, 
I don't know. I'm going to pick something kind of uh, a little bit outside the what, what I should pick is probably something more classic. Uh, but there's a novel that I've read a couple of times and I and I so enjoy it. And it's actually a modern author and someone who your your listeners might be interested in. There's a book called Empire Falls by Richard Russo. Um, and it's just a terrific novel about a small town in upstate New York. And the characters are so well drawn and and when I read it, I just I, I I identify with different characters each time I read it. It's it's so easy to get into. And um, yeah, I, I just I don't know whether I would want to be left with one book on a deserted island. I'd probably want to be left with lots of books. But um, but this morning, that's the book I would pick. Well, and thank you for that. I mean, the one I would pick would be a book titled How to Build a Raft. So I can get <laughs> off of that island. But if that, I don't know who wrote that. I don't I don't know. I, I, I think even with a book called How to Build a Raft, I would also have had to, you know, have taken some carpentry classes and some other things. So probably wouldn't do me much good. That's true. Although I did watch that movie with Tom Hanks, and I do think yeah. I have an idea how to do it, how, okay. how to build it. Let me, well, let me ask you this all right so if you're Uh smart enough to get into harvard and smart enough to get out of harvard with that latin phrase yeah why pick writing you mean a smart person wouldn't pick writing no i'm thinking about that old (laughs) quote from bobby knight the uh, indiana basketball coach most people learn to write in the second grade and they move on i don't believe that i love to write Uh, yeah you obviously love to do it and you're good at it, but you also majored in government and you did not go into government. No, but I do write a lot about government policy. Um, I think uh, for me, the I mean, writing is is fun. I didn't go into like you know, to fiction writing. I didn't decide to write novels. I don't have much of a talent for that. But um, but I love actually doing the reporting and getting to be a journalist and hearing people's stories and then representing people's stories as best as I can on the page. Um, so that to me is, you know, the the writing part itself. I don't know. It's probably a little painful like it is for all writers, but um, but getting to interview people and talk to them about, you know, what motivates them and, and understand their lives and try to explain that to other people um, and explain, you know, in the context of my of my current job, you know, how the policies that we make as a country affect people's lives and can change people's lives for the better or worse. All right. You've written a book. I want to ask you about that. You've written Lots of books. You've written more books than I've read, but I'm going to ask you about the most recent one. But before I do that, when I was researching you, I found two articles you wrote, one that fascinated me because it reminded me of my old job, which is boyfriends who hurt their girlfriend's children. Yeah. What prompted you to write about that? And what did you find? Because I saw it all the time. Yeah. Well, this is you don't you don't have to be a prosecutor or a journalist to kind of uncover this pattern. If you ever read the headlines, um, you know, tragic cases of child fatalities. Um, I used to write a lot about them for The New York Post, particularly. Um, you know, if you read a paragraph into the story, you know, you realize what's going on here. You know, there's a there's a non what they call a non relative male living in the house. There's a single mother and a non relative male. So either maybe it's a stepfather, but more likely it's, you know, the mother's boyfriend. 
Um, and there is something about that relationship between a mother's boyfriend and the child of another man um, that is very volatile. It can be very volatile. I mean, obviously, there are amazing stepfathers out there. I don't mean to demean or belittle that relationship because it can be amazing. Um, but there is something about either the jealousy that a mother's boyfriend might experience having another man's child in the house, um, the sense that he's not getting enough of the girlfriend's attention, whatever it is, um, it results in a highly disproportionate number of the uh, child maltreatment cases and child fatalities. So a child who is living in a home with a mother and a non-relative male is about 11 times as likely to be abused as a child living with two married parents. And I just, I really want to draw attention to that problem, not because, you know, we should look with suspicion on every relationship that's like that, but that when we have, um, you know, caseworkers for child welfare agencies who are investigating these cases, they need to understand all of the risks and especially the high risks uh, when they're looking at a child and seeing whether or not that child should remain in that house after there have been accusations of abuse or neglect. Well, you researched it and I did not other than just by anecdote, the cases I prosecuted, I was stunned at the number of times uh, the mom took the side of the boyfriend, did not believe that the boyfriend was capable of doing that up to and including after the jury verdict came back. Yeah. I mean, 12 other people had no difficulty concluding that the boyfriend did it, but for some reason, mom I, and I, you and I are not psychologists, but I guess it, it is a tacit admission that you made the wrong decision and right. who you chose um, to partner with, I guess, is why they're so reluctant. Sure. I mean, um, I think there are a lot of different scenarios. Um, you know, in some cases, the mother herself is being abused uh, by the boyfriend as well. So there's domestic abuse that's coinciding with child abuse. And the mother, you know, fears the boyfriend and obviously, you know, uh, is sort of letting this happen in her house um, because she is in fear for her own safety and her own life. In other cases, the mother is dependent, you know, on the boyfriend, feels that, you know, she can't get access to money or drugs or other things um, without that man in the house. And so she's protecting or prioritizing that relationship over the relationship with her child. Um, and there are a lot of people, you know, now who are really agitating for the idea that um, that these women are, you know, are innocent and that they should be, you know, protected and that we shouldn't be punishing them for the choices that they make. Um, but I think we, we really have to ask ourselves, you know, the, someone has to be held responsible. And this is the woman, you know, whose, whose child, you know, she has made these decisions about the household that her child is going to grow up in. And I'm not saying that these women are not victims on some level as well. Um, but sometimes we end up charging these women with neglect, for instance, like part of the neglect statute in most states is leaving a child with a known abuser. Um, and, pe you know, people often dismiss neglect as not really something that's that harmful because they think, oh, it, it just as long as you're not actually beating the kid yourself, you know, then then everything's fine. But obviously, these women are putting their children in a very dangerous position. And I think, you know, the law still needs to find a way to hold these women accountable for their choices, not just the men. The other thing that that baffled me, particularly in, in shaken baby cases or when the boyfriend would say, you know, I couldn't sleep. I had to go to work. The child would not stop crying. I never understood why they you just don't leave the house. I mean, leaving an infant by itself is terrible. It is wrong. But at least the child has a chance to live. You don't have a yeah. chance to live when you're shaken to death. But but why they took that route instead of just going and getting in the car 
going wherever you want to go, leave the kid by itself. At least it has a chance then. Well, these men are not, you know, they're 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 often not controlling their anger in other contexts as well. I mean, it's not uncommon also for these men to have criminal records outside of their home. You know, they're returning from prison into these households. Um, you know, they have violent histories with other adults. And so, you know, one thing that I think we need to be aware of is when these men are released from prison um, or when there is a report of child abuse in a home where, you know, you know, an ex-convict is living, you know, we need to be aware aware of the risk factors of that person with violent tendencies being in a home with children, even if they've never been violent toward children in the past. I mean, they're, they're just not, they're not people, you know, who are, are very good at controlling their impulses. And, and they also do not process information and choices, oftentimes uh, not in a way that, uh, that we would want to incent. All right. The other book, uh, not book, article that you wrote that, uh, that did get some attention was men not going to college. Oh, okay. That was not an option when I was coming along. I may have availed myself of that option, but it was not an option for my parents. I was going whether I wanted to or not. Why are men opting to not go to college? And if they're not going to college, what are they doing? So there was a really big, interesting uh, Wall Street Journal uh, article recently that sort of broke down the numbers and realized uh, how many men were either not going to college or were dropping out. Um, This the ratio problem has kind of been there for a long time. Colleges for years have actually had lower standards for admitting men than women um, because they want to make sure that there are sufficient number of men on campus (laughs) to kind of even things out for the dating pool. Um, But that being said, you have to ask yourself kind of what is it? about men today at college today that makes them less likely to go. Um, So, you know, first things, you know, there's some sociological reasons going on here that start long before higher education. You know, K-12 education right now is not very friendly toward boys. Uh, You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, what they would call ADHD or, you know, the hyperactivity that we would, you know, I would sort of think of as, you know, pretty normal behavior for boys. Um, But instead, you know, we've eliminated recess. We've said, you know, these boys need to you know, take medication in order to calm them down. Even the books that we assign in school are much more geared toward uh, girls than than boys. Uh, we don't assign the Treasure Island kind of books anymore because you know those seem violent <laughs> and stuff like that. I mean, my my son just finished reading uh, Lord of the Flies, and I'm like, you know, this is a this is a book that really teaches you something about you know human nature and also the relationship among boys and men. Um, but we don't we don't teach that sort of thing anymore. That's kind of considered inappropriate. So there's an educational front. And then there's also simply the, you know, kind of family structure and home environment that boys have. Um, They don't, you know, they're often growing up without male role models. Um, They're, you know, they're lost in video games. I mean, there's so many factors here, but one that I I wanted to point to in the article that I wrote um, was about how college these days is very much about, you know, multitasking. It's like, how many different activities can you check off your list? You know, you joined all these different clubs, you have a planner that's perfectly organized. And I, I, my sense is really that women are actually much better at that stuff, which is not to say that it's a, you know, it's, it's a bad thing. Um, but I think men and women tend to have different strengths, not all men and all women. Um, but I think that you know, college, as opposed to whereas, you know, at one point it might have sort of let you really specialize and delve into just one topic in particular and become a little bit obsessed with that topic. Um, I think now uh, it's become much more about this, you know, organizational 
um, aspect of it. And I think that men are a little bit turned off by that, too. Have you ever and this is an unfair question because I didn't tell you I was going to ask it, um, (laughs) but it just popped into my head. I wonder if there's any research or if you have looked into whether or not single gender education or or splitting the gender, splitting the the sexes for I, I know that some people do it for elementary school. They choose to go that route. I wonder if there's any research on whether men would be more likely or less likely to go to college if they did not have to compete with women, if they were just competing against their own colleagues who also were incapable of multitasking. Yeah. Well, I think um, both men and women benefit a lot from single sex education. And unfortunately, um, we have reduced the options, particularly for men in that way. We've cut out a lot of single sex colleges for men um, at the same time as single sex colleges for women have actually been able to thrive. And I think that that is um, it's 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 a reflection of kind of our our societal attitudes about kind of men being on their own. Um, But I think it's a real problem. Uh, And I do think think that Um, You know, I've looked more at the kind of high school level of success um, for single sex education. And I think there are great benefits both to women and men for being able to study in those single sex environments. And, you know, we we talk about it more with women. We say, oh, you know, women would be great. It's great for women to just be in a math class by themselves, you know, so men don't talk over them and yell out all the answers, things like that. But I think for men, you know, if you talk to, to men who've taught in those environments, they will describe how they are able to teach in a different way that is much more um, kind of attuned to what boys, uh, how boys learn. And so I could absolutely see that being a benefit both in the high school context as well as in the college context. But we have a lot of the male college, all male colleges in this country have shut down in the last few decades. Yeah, my wife went to a single gender school and I think they just decided in South Carolina, I think they just decided to admit men, although I will say this, Naomi, if you if I was ever in the class with you and only other women, there is no danger that I would call out the uh, answer in a math class. Uh, <laughs> and there is even less danger that the answer would be correct. So that may be true for other men, but you wouldn't hear me open my mouth in a math. Well, I didn't, I didn't major in math, you'll note. So. <laughs> uh, I managed to make it through college without taking a math class, which I'm oh, not proud right. of, but I'd still be in college if I had to. So there you go. No way to treat a child. What led you to want to, you've written how many books now? This is number seven. So you really have written more than I've read. Why (laughs) this topic? So I feel like a lot of different experiences led me to this topic. Um, A few years ago, I actually wrote a book about American Indians. Um, It's uh, it's called New Trail of Tears. And um, for that book, I actually ended up traveling around to a lot of Indian territories across the country, reservations. Um, And one of the things that is most striking in those communities is how poor the child welfare outcomes are. Very high rates of child maltreatment, um, the highest in the country uh, when broken down by race. a foster care system that is a disaster, um, a situation thanks to a, a ridiculous law called the Indian Child Welfare Act that says that tribes get to have a say in where children are placed and they can prevent an Indian child from being placed with a white family, even if that's the best option available for them. Um, so, you know, during the time that I was writing that, and then they also had some communities where there was widespread sexual abuse. I mean, it was it was very upsetting, um, but I, it did make me start thinking about what 
what the rest of the child welfare system looked like um, and uh, and whether these problems were uh, rampant in the rest of the country, too. Um, and I would say that they're not as bad, but it, it did make me want to look into this further. And um, and so when I was at the um, New York Post and, you know, writing about some of the um, child welfare cases that made the headlines in big cities, um, I got a little bit of a taste of trying to understand this, too. And I asked um you know, I asked some of my conservative friends, you know, about what the solution was to this problem. You know, many people are familiar, for instance, with broken windows policing. You know, the idea that we need to do, um, you know, some some work on low level crimes in order for us to get a handle on the large crimes in the, in the uh, in cities. And this was a great success in New York for many years, obviously. But I asked people, you know, kind of what is the broken windows theory of child welfare? Like, how can we improve this bureaucracy? And I think a lot of folks on the right, you know, kind of shrugged and said, you know, this is what you get when you have the breakdown of the American family. And that is um, an answer that I found completely true and yet totally insufficient. Um, I, I, you know, it's absolutely true that the breakdown of the family has resulted in all sorts of abuse and neglect. And, you know, the problems we were talking about, the boyfriend problem that we were just talking about. But what what do you then say to the half a million children who are in the foster care system? Can we rewind your life and go back and have you brought up in a two parent married family? Not not really. Um, so what are we going to do now? And what are we going to do about the three million children who get reported for abuse or neglect every year? Um, and so that sort of really made me kind of wonder, like, what 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 could we be doing? Because I you know, the the left is really at the table when it comes to child welfare. And most of the time their solution is. We need to throw more money at the problem. Um, we need to throw more racial sensitivity at the problem. Um, we need to abolish the foster care system. I mean, they have all sorts of insane ideas and solutions for this, as far as I'm concerned. But I think when you look at the state level, even the federal level, you find that, you know, Republicans, conservatives, you know, even independents are not even at the table having these discussions. They've kind of thrown their hands up. And I just... I don't think the problem is intractable. I think it's actually quite solvable. Um, but, you know, we have to be at the table having these discussions. Your answer raised two thoughts in my head. Number one, you mentioned reports of abuse <laughs> and neglect. I think most people know that there are mandatory reporters, but they may not. Um, I would imagine uh, pediatricians, maybe emergency room physicians, school teachers, school counselors. I mean, do they fall under the category of mandatory reporters? And are there folks that could come in contact with abuse or neglect and they have no legal responsibility to report? Yes, absolutely. So the, the mandatory reporters are doc, typically doctors, teachers, social workers, you know, law enforcement um, would be kind of the broad categories of people who are required by their job and are trained to look for signs of abuse and neglect um, and to report to authorities. But a lot of reports also come in from folks who are, you know, neighbors or even relatives. I mean, you it, it is not uncommon for a child abuse hotline to get a call from an aunt or a grandmother saying, I'm concerned for my nieces or nephews or grandchildren. I don't feel like they're, you know, they're being properly fed. 
fed or clothed or that somebody or that a man in the house is is not treating them right. Um, and so, you know, those cases are, you know, they're they're kind of afraid sometimes to intervene themselves um, on behalf of their children when those families and they feel the need to call authorities. Um, and and it's a combination of these people like it's I think child welfare kind of has this reputation as being like, you know, a lot of nosy middle aged white women who start knocking on doors and, you know, saying, you know, I hear something's going on in there or something like that. There's a whole process here. And typically the people who are doing the reports are the people who are closest to those kids who are seeing them day in and day out, who are seeing them show up to school with bruises or with, you know, without sufficient clothing or kids who haven't eaten all weekend, um, you know, or their doctors or their or their neighbors who are down the hall. And um, and I think that it's important to understand that there's a whole process here. Once those reports come in, you know, then we have to figure out, you know, how quickly we need to send someone out there, um, you know, how quickly we need to investigate and who is doing those investigations. And then there's a whole process. It's not just like, oh, we get a call and then we go snatch these children away. You know, th- there's a multi-year long process, essentially, um, for most of these kids where, you know, if they are deemed in sufficient danger, maybe they would get taken away for some brief period of time, but quickly get sent back. I'm Trey Gowdy, and we'll have more coming up. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. All right, Naomi, we live in a culture now that uh, does not like profiling, even if it is uh, supported by the statistics. Is it true that men are, are more likely to engage in abuse um, and or neglect, or um, is it about 50-50? Well, there are different kinds of maltreatment. I mean, you know, typically because these children are more likely to be living uh, with a single mother, it would be the mother who is engaged in probably more of the neglect, which is to say, you know, and, and again, people misunderstand what neglect is. You know, they think it just has to do with not being able to afford food or something like that. It's not it's not poverty. More often than not, it really has to do with substance abuse or mental illness issues. Um, so a woman, you know, might not be just properly taking care of the, her own children. Um, you know, men are you know going to typically be, you know, more violent than women, I think, on the whole. Um, but I don't think that that really helps us understand very much because the vast majority of cases in the system are really neglect cases. They are not cases that you read about necessarily in the headlines, you know, children locked in basement and tortured for years. There are cases where parents are just so mentally out to lunch that they have failed to care for sometimes very small children. I mean, the the need to pay attention to, um, you know, infants, obviously, you know, there's, you, you can't, you know, uh, be out to lunch for, you know, for a 24 hours and, you know, expect an infant to, to be able to handle that. Um, and that's true, obviously, even as children get older, when they're not aware of all the dangers that parents have to warn them about and keep them out of. Um, so I think it's less a kind of man versus woman thing than just a fact that, you know, the, the substance abuse country, you know, crisis in this country is really driving a lot of these cases. Um, and they're very dangerous. Or you mentioned substance abuse a couple of times when I talk to my friends on the left and I talk to them all the time and I have a ton of friends that don't look at life the same way I look at it, but they always bring up poverty. They always bring up money. If only there were more money. 
But you have mentioned substance abuse a couple of times now, and I don't know how money fixes substance abuse. If you're addicted to something, I don't know how higher uh, TANF benefits help that. I mean, we, you know, we can have an argument about how big the safety net is in this country. I don't you know, some people think it's it's not big enough. Some people think it's just fine. But I think that there is general agreement or there should be that there is no child in this country who should be lacking food. We have enough free breakfast, free lunch programs, food stamp programs that any parent who is reasonably kind of in their right mind could go and get food for their children. It, 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 that, that, that help really exists out there. Um, and we, we push it on people. I mean, we really, we have, we have an army of social workers who want to sign up people for these programs, but there are cases where families are just the, the, the adults in the home are simply not paying enough attention or they are, you know, their their mental state is altered where they cannot recognize the need. It's really interesting. I was talking to this um, this guy who used to teach at the University of Pennsylvania. He died uh, last year. Um, his name is Richard Gellis. And he said, you know, at one point they started looking at what were the reports that led up to a child fatality? Because you want to understand, like, what happened before that? And so, you know, they were expecting, oh, you know, the first call would be a black eye and the second call would be like a broken bone and the third call would be some bruise or something like that. No, what they found was an, a series of escalating reports of, of neglect. They would found, um, you know, we went to this child's house and there was no electricity in the house and it was Pittsburgh in the middle of the winter or we went to this house and there was no running water or we went to this house and the children hadn't been bathed in weeks. And so it wasn't necessarily escalating violence. It was escalating the parents not really understanding what was going on in their own home. And more money is not going to fix that problem. You know, you could put it toward addiction treatment programs and, you know, I would have no objection to that. But the problem, as we all know, and this is a very unfortunate fact of life when it comes to substance abuse is there is no foolproof way to kick addiction. You know, we, you know, parents may, you know, and their substance abuse problem in the first try with a 30 day program, or it may take them years or they may never end it. And so at that point, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what are we doing for those children now? How long should those children have to wait? But throwing more money at that particular problem and just saying, you know, oh, these parents, you know, if we if we just gave them a housing voucher, everything would be fine, I think is really just kind of magical thinking. All right, I want to touch on a couple of other issues because I do want people to go buy your book. So I don't want to go through the entire book so they don't go. So <laughs> Leave some mystery, yes. Right, but you you keep mentioning things that cause me to wonder. Like I won't call the name of the, the Indian Child Welfare Act. I probably got that wrong. But That's if right. there is if there is this belief that Native American children should be with Native American foster parents or that children of color uh, should not be raised by white foster parents. I mean, is that pervasive? Because, I mean, I would I would just think you want a set of parents that, number one, are going to do a great job, that love the kid either permanently or until the biological parents get their act together. 
I think that that represents the sentiment of most Americans who think, you know, a stable, loving home is what a child most needs. And it's also, by the way, what the science says. I mean, you know, we know so much more about neurological development than we ever have. Kids need a secure attachment, especially from the ages of zero to three, where their brains are forming and they need to understand that if they have a need, you know, there is an adult there who will be with, there for them. Um, I think that there is this um, kind of racial, this racialized thinking that has become it was pervasive in the 1970s. So you had in, in, in the early 70s, the National Association of Black Social Workers came out with a statement that literally said, we think it is more important for children who are black to be in a black home with black parents um, than for them to be in a safe, safe, stable, loving home with white parents. In fact, they preferred that black children would remain in orphanages to being placed with a white family. And that remains their position, by the way. So what you had, though, you know, over time, I think a lot of people thought, you know, increasingly became aware of this problem and thought, you know, this is not this is not right. And in the 1990s, you know, a bipartisan coalition of folks in Congress came together, um, people like uh, Mary Landrew, who was a senator from Louisiana. Um, you know, you had Mike DeWine, who is now the governor of Ohio, but he was senator at the time, you know, who came together and said, look, we, we want what's best for children. And they passed something called the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, which said you cannot discriminate on the basis of race when you're placing a child for foster care or placing a child for adoption out of the foster care system. Um, and that was a really important piece of legislation. And in the years since, tens of thousands more Black children have been able to be placed in safe, stable, loving homes as a result of that legislation. But what you've had in the last few years, as the kind of racial insanity has taken over this country, more and more people are going back to this idea that the most important thing is that the skin color matches. And so you have not only judges who are flouting the law, you know, lawyers mentioning kids race in court, um, you know, but also this kind of like undertone, you know, behind the scenes where caseworkers are, you know, making comments under their breath about how the white parents don't know how to braid the black kids hair or something like that. And that is, you know, something that should prevent these parents from having custody of these children. And I have to say, you know, I went back and I looked at the literature because I think it's really important to answer this question once and for all. There are absolutely no difference, no differences in the outcomes for children who are for black children who are adopted by black parents and black children who are adopted by white parents, which is to say there are, you know, adoption is a very traumatic event. It, it just by nature, it means that something has happened to your biological parents that they can't care for you. But when you control for that event, when you say, OK, let's just look at kids who are adopted, the kids who are adopted transracially versus the kids who are adopted same race, there is no difference in their outcomes. And so what we then have to focus on is who can provide the best home for this child. And I want to just refocus our, our system on that, because right now there are people agitating for overturning the multi-ethnic placement act, for saying, yes, we should insert race back into this conversation and race is the most important thing. I, I've, I, it takes a lot to stun me. I find it stunning that someone would believe that a child is better off in an orphanage than with parents of a different race. I just find that stunning. I, 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 I would have thought that, that 
the human condition had evolved beyond that, but um, uh, maybe not. You mentioned biological parents. I'm in a very small minority. I mean, I'm sitting there thinking if a biological parent can put a cigarette out on the forehead of a child, then all that belief that something in the biology makes us love our own more is out the window. Um, and that the, the, the hurdle should be steeper to ever be reunited with a child that you have abused. But I think there still is this preference for reunification with biological parents, right? I, I think I'm in the minority there. Oh, it's, it's, it's not just the preference. I mean, every state child welfare agency out there, family preservation and family reunification are the ideological names of the game. There's really no getting around it. I mean, these, these agencies will do absolutely anything to keep these children with their biological families. And what's amazing is that it goes even further than that. So on the off chance that they decide a child is really unsafe with the biological family, then the first thing they will do is say, let's look to kinship care. So they will say, like, let's find the grandmother or the aunt or something like that, which I think makes sense to a lot of people on its surface. Like, of course, the grandma is going to step in, except sometimes a lot of the dysfunction that is affecting the nuclear family is also affecting the extended family. Um, I talk about uh, a little bit, I don't know, for those of your listeners who have read The Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, it's a really great book. Um, and he actually sort of talks about how his grandmother raised him and it turned out great. And he went into the Marines and he went to Yale and his grandmother sort of saved him from an abusive situation with his mother. But I have to tell you, his grandmother never would have passed a background check. I mean, this is a woman who literally doused his grandfather in gasoline and set the man on fire. And so you ask yourself, like, you know, I'm glad it worked out for you, but but maybe, you know, this was not the placement that was ideal because you have to ask yourself, like the kind of violence, the kind of substance abuse, the kind of dysfunction that affects the parents. You know, those parents came from someplace. And I'm not saying this is this is all genetic or that it's even all nurture. I'm just saying, you know, we should be holding these kinship placements to a pretty high standard, too. If we require background checks and you know safety checks for non-relative foster parents, we should be requiring the same thing for kinship care. We should be saying, is this the best home for you? Like we know and, and the, the level of concern about this blood sharing is so pervasive that kids are literally getting ripped out of longtime foster homes. Like they could be cared for by a fo set of foster parents for two or three years. And then an aunt across the country says, I want to take this kid in. The kid may not even have ever met the aunt, but the agency is so concerned that they reunite this child with someone who shares his or her blood that they will ship the child across the country in the name of kinship care. So it's it's just there's no there's no common sense and there's no understanding of like of the attachment that a child forms and needs. Is there some evidence that indicates that I would thrive with an aunt I've never met as opposed to a couple on another street in my hometown uh, that I am not biologically related to? No, there's no I don't think there's any evidence of that. I mean, these are people, you know, when I interview them, they'll you know talk about the evolutionary imperative or something like that, which I find so bizarre. I mean, there's really not a lot of evidence that, you know, the, the aunt you've never met or the second cousin you've never met has some biological imperative to care for you better than the people who know you well and who've already cared for you for years. Um, but, you know, it just part of the, the kinship discussion gets 
gets sort of tied in with the race discussion and it becomes this whole like, you know, you're you become part of a tribe, like even if you're not an Indian child, you become you know, it's most important that you stay with your tribe um, and that you stay with people who look like you and stay with people who share your blood. And I find that they're, they're really kind of dangerous ideas because we should really be thinking about the best interests of the child. And these ideas are really more about the adult's feelings and the adult's sensibilities and the adult's needs. And unfortunately, I think the child welfare system has really become oriented around those things. Wait right there. We'll have more next. All right. Two more questions, because uh, even though I don't have plans for the rest of the day, you probably do. <laughs> How old does a child need to be before that child can speak up and say, well, this is actually my preference? That varies a lot from state to state. I mean, most judges are are uninterested in that probably before a child is at least, you know, nine or 10, I would say. Um, and this becomes a real problem. I mean, not just in court, but like I interviewed a, a family um, in New York City who who's, you know, we're taking care of a five year old and he was going back for regular unsupervised visits with the mother who had abused him. Um, and the boy started talking about things about sexual things and started trying to touch his sibling in inappropriate ways. And he would report things about his visits. And the couple was literally told by law enforcement that they could not be interested in what he had to say because he was only five years old. And they should come back, you know, when he was like eight or nine and let let them know if he was still saying these things. I mean, so, you know, you really have to, you know, not that we should believe everything a kid says. I mean, you know, I have kids, my five-year-old would often say things that would be, you know, completely outlandish. But we do have to watch, you know, what a child is saying, what they're reporting and what their behavior is after they've come out of a particular situation to understand what's really going on. You know, I think back uh, children, I uh, think four was the youngest I ever saw qualified as a witness in, uh, in another trial, certainly five-year-olds, seven-year-olds, the ability to know the difference between right and wrong and that there are consequences for being wrong. Is kind of the standard for whether or not you can testify in court. It strikes me, you don't have to take the child's word. I'm just thinking, hear them out. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is you conclude that they don't know the difference between right and wrong, and you don't assign any weight to what they say. Right. But that's different from saying that we're not going to hear you out. All right, last question. You and I have talked in the past about the analogy between domestic violence, interpersonal violence, and the foster care system, domestic violence, for those who hopefully are not familiar with it, you encourage uh, the woman, and it's almost always a woman, uh, to get as far away from that violence. And we don't spend any time trying to reunify the woman with an abusive boyfriend or husband. I mean, we spend zero time trying to do that. But that's not true when it comes to children, is it? No, we have a a kind of an amazing double standard here. I mean, like I said, the child welfare agencies, their main goal and and the goal that remains in place for years is how can I put this family back together? And, you know, in many cases, this is this is how caseworkers are trained. I mean, I think we should think about caseworkers more like law enforcement. You know, they're on the front line. They're going to investigate a case where someone says some a child is being harmed. Um, and instead, they're going into it with this idea of like, how do I sort of put this all back together so that everyone lives happily ever after? But the whole 
system is kind of oriented around seeing not, you know, in the case of domestic violence, you know, you're seeing the woman in most cases as the victim. Here, I think what you're seeing is that many child welfare agencies see many of the adults as victims, too. They're victims of poverty. They're victims of racism. They're victims of substance abuse. Many of them have gone through the child welfare system themselves. And I'm not saying that they have not been victimized in some way or that we shouldn't feel some sense of empathy for them for what they have gone through for difficult lives. But the goal of the child welfare system has to be singularly focused on the best interests of the child. It has to you have to sort of say, like, what is best for this child? In some cases, you know, maybe it is staying with the parent and maybe the parent can be rehabilitated. And maybe, you know, some of this parent's problems could be solved if we gave them a housing voucher. I'm not saying that never happens, but in the vast majority of cases, we have to be separating with a child's best interests from the adult's best interests. And sometimes they will meet, but sometimes they will not. And, you know, you and I talked the other day about the role of court appointed special advocates. These are people who are called CASAs who appear um, in family courts and they, they meet with a child regularly who is the subject of a child welfare investigation. Um, they, they, they probably spend as much, you know, more time with the child than any of the court officers do. Um, and they are supposed to go into the courtroom and represent particularly the interests of a younger child who can't represent their own interests and say, like, you know, this is how the child seems to me when they're with their biological parent. This is how the child seems to me in a foster home. Are they thriving? Where are their siblings? Now there is a big move to turn CASAs into family advocates. So now they're no longer just representing the views or the best interests of the child. They're supposed to represent the views of the child and the mother and the father and the grandmother and the aunt and the, and, and because the whole goal is how can I get this family back together? And I think, you know, people misunderstand, you know, why, why do we have CASAs? Why do we, why do we have the, court, the adversarial court system we have? It's not because we're mean. It's because we think everybody deserves a voice in court and everybody's interests deserve to be represented. And what you have here is the erasure of the voice of the children that is going on right before our eyes. Well, that used to be the standard, and it seemed like a pretty good standard if it were actually followed, which is what is in the best interest of the child? I can tell you I never heard the phrase, what is in the best interest of the broader family? So being the simple-minded person I am, I'm going to stick with what is in the best interest of the child. And the title of the book is No Way to Treat a Child for Anyone Who is Interested kind of a research or evidence-based look at this issue. And everybody, everybody claims to love children. So this is not an issue we can turn our eyes from. All right, Naomi, I love to ask people moral questions at the end. Um, I like, like moral ambiguity or how would you handle this? So I'm going to ask you one too, okay? And just so everybody can know, I haven't prompted her. She has no idea this is coming, and she's probably going to invoke her Fifth Amendment right to counsel. All right, your husband's a very accomplished writer, just like you are. Yes. So you're reading something that's been published, written by him and published. It's already out. Or he's reading something that you've written that's already out, okay? Yes. And you notice a grammatical mistake. Do you point it out or do you ignore it because there's nothing that can be done about it at that point? Well, 
I would say we probably tend to point it out because these things are online and there actually is something that can be done about it at that point. Um, but we we don't hold each other responsible. We we, we just hold the editors responsible. Oh, uh, well, I never even thought about that. Blame the editor. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> You're That's right. What writers there, like to do. <laughs> there are these little corrections that appear from time to time under articles yes. and your books are reprinted. Yes. But I have, I have often wondered, like, I can't tell you, as you can tell from talking to me twice now, there are no, no rules of grammar that I follow. I don't know the rules of grammar. And if I knew them, I would not follow them. But the number of times people, my friends will tell me about a mistake I made after the fact when I cannot change it, I just find stunning. So um, to me, it is better not to say anything unless it can be fixed in the future. And you're out, I guess, is your your subject verb agreement mistakes and your husband's can be fixed in the future. So point it out. Is that what yes. you're saying? Yes. You can go back online now and, and change it all. I mean, obviously you can't, you can't do much about the print one, but, but you, but most people read this stuff online now, so you can fix it and no one will be the wiser. Well, I'm going to make sure my friends know that that's an option <laughs> instead of calling me at two o'clock in the morning and t- saying that I've split an infinitive or something on television. <laughs> Naomi Schaefer Riley, the author of seven books now, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Seven books and a number of articles. Um, I've touched upon some of them, but there are a lot more out there. So if you like to learn and you like to read stuff written by somebody that knows what they're talking about and has looked at it, even if you don't agree, check it out. Thank you, Naomi. And I look forward to visiting with you again sometime. Thanks very much. It was great talking to you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for spending another Tuesday with Trey. Please subscribe, rate, or review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or at foxnewspodcast.com. You've been listening to the Trey Gowdy Podcast on the Fox News Podcast Network. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.